Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. We are in Season 8 of Heart to Heart with Anna, and our theme this season is Care for Adults with Congenital Heart Defects. Our show today is What's New in Anticoagulation Drugs, and our guest is pharmacist Rebecca Brunel. I have known our guest for over a decade, and yet... I learned things about her and putting a show together I never knew before. And one thing I've learned is that being a member of the HER community has a certain amount of interconnectedness about it. We have so much more in common with one another than we realize. And it's not until we start talking about different issues that we realize how much we really do have in common. Rebecca, or Becky, as I've always known her, Brunel, has been a pharmacist for over 25 years. She has worked in both the outpatient and inpatient settings, as well as the Veterans Administration Hospital Outpatient Anticoagulation Clinic. Becky is currently the mother of two college graduates, one in pharmacy and one in social work. She grew up with a father who had continual heart problems and was on Coumadin through most of her childhood. Becky is no stranger to the best and worst of anticoagulants. She is eager to share with us what she knows about medications to help those born with congenital heart defects. Welcome to the show, Becky. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Anna. I can't believe that I've known you for about 15 years, and I never knew that your dad had heart problems, Becky. So can you tell us what kind of problems he had and why he was on Coumadin? Yes. Anna, my dad had his first heart attack at the age of 42, which was in 1955. By 1972, I was seven years old, and he had had his fifth heart attack and had retired. So by the time I was in second grade, my dad was retired. And in my third grade year, he was given six months to live without open heart surgery. And when the surgeon came to evaluate him, they realized he had no collateral circulation, so he was not a candidate for open heart surgery. So basically, was given a death sentence. But my brother was a young physician at the time and worked out a way for him to meet with Dr. DeBakey down in Houston. And they drove him down there. And I remember my dad crawling into the station wagon, laying down, and them taking him to Houston and me thinking I'd probably never see him again. And when they brought him back, he was driving the station wagon back a week later. And all they had done was given him medications. And actually, he lived on medications until he died in 1985. So basically, that's 11 years that he lived with his heart condition and the advancements in medicine at the time and just tweaking his medicine just right so that he would. So it was quite a testament to his life. And he was very diligent with his care, too. Wow. So he actually had a congenital heart defect and didn't even know it. What do you mean he didn't have any collaterals? I'm not sure exactly what that means. Because uh, Collateral in- circulation, whenever they go in and they do bypass surgery, they're actually bypassing the clots or they're putting new veins in. And, of course, a surgeon would be better to tell you that. But they need a better way of the circulation around the heart. And he didn't have that. His veins weren't strong enough for that to give any kind of different pathway. And so basically the open heart surgeon said, really, there's no point in him having open heart surgery. He either wouldn't survive it or it wouldn't take. And you've got to remember this was very new at the time. 
they just refused to do it and just said he wouldn't be a good candidate. Wow. Well, he was so young to have his first heart attack. He reminds me of another guest I had on my show who actually discovered that he had a defective gene that caused him to have a heart attack. He had a heart attack, believe it or not, Becky, on his wedding night. Wow. He was extremely young. Well, yes, he was very young when he had his first heart attack. And actually, if anything good is going to come out of it, I guess around his second or third heart attack was when my mother was his nurse. And they ended up getting married. So. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That's just an amazing story. And here I've known you all these years, and I never knew that about mm-hmm. your wife. I never knew that about your father. So, wow. That is truly amazing. And the fact that he was able to live for 11 years on medication. Now, I'm guessing... He probably didn't have just one medication, but he probably had a series of medications, and there must have been some anticoagulants in there because I'm sure they were afraid he would have a stroke. Sure, sure. He was on quite a regimen of medication. He was very, I guess what we would call today OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. All his medicines would be in a cigar box, and he would line them up to take him every morning, take him at noon and in the evening. And he was great about going to get his labs done, great at getting his doctor's appointments done. He was an ideal medication candidate. There was no such thing as noncompliance in his world. (laughs) Well, that's good. And that's the way that he was able to live as long as he did. Had he been inconsistent with his medications, he may have compromised his health. Exactly. So do you think that watching your father take all of these drugs and your mother being a nurse, that that's what encouraged you to become a pharmacist? Without a doubt. I think there were two things that played into this. The first thing being my father taking so many medications and the idea that medication or a little tablet that's no more than a millimeter, maybe two millimeters, can be taken and cure or help so many different things, an antibiotic to cure an infection where you feel lousy and then within two or three days you feel better and you have to keep taking it to knock out the infection. That was a huge part to me that I just thought, what a modern day miracle that this can happen. And the second thing that happened along this time was, of course, my dad had to buy his medications and so we became frequent consumers at Eckerd's Drugstore, which is now CVS. And I would end up going up there after school every day to do nothing but stock shelves and help put the order away when it came in. So for the time I was nine years old, I was actually the Eckert's kid. And I loved the fact that the pharmacy had all these stocks of medications and what miracle drugs they were. So of course, when I turned 16, the first thing I did was go and fill out my application so I could work there. And I'd always wanted to be a pharmacist. And so that just kind of one thing led to another. And it really wasn't until my dad passed away that I realized that I could make the dream of pharmacy come true. So there were a couple of things there that really played into it. My mom, of course, didn't want me to be a nurse because she knew how hard nursing was. And Mm -hmm. she felt like that the pharmacists she worked with weren't exactly go-getters. So she thought that might be a little easier job for me. But totally misrepresentation on the perception of a nurse and a pharmacist. (laughs) So it was, yeah, definitely was not what she thought it was. And I remember my first day coming home and saying, nurses drive pharmacists crazy. And and she says, well, pharmacists drive nurses crazy. 
So she was always able to help me keep things in perspective. But I think the miracle of modern medicine, even now, I mean, it grows by leaps and bounds. And even back then, for a little kid to see how something that looks like an M&M can change a man's life was a huge miracle to me. Right, right. It must have really shaped who you were to become. And the fact that you were allowed at nine years old to go into Eckert's and start stocking shelves, you would never see that anymore, would you, Becky? No, and you probably shouldn't have seen it then. I'm sure there were child labor laws. And of course, every time the district managers would come in, I'd have to pretend I was a customer. But all the managers knew I kind of came with the store. And I was only sweeping floors and maybe fronting things and making them look better. But the pharmacists were great with me. In fact, one of them to this day is still very instrumental in my life and my children's lives. And he was very encouraging to me to go on to pharmacy school and not give up on that dream, not relinquish that dream. Well, Becky, Coumadin, as you know, is a very scary drug. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Coumadin is, what it does to the body, and how doctors regulate Coumadin? Sure, I'd love to. Coumadin is an oral anticoagulant that when you are dealing with clotting, there's something called the clotting cascade. And there's many different steps in the clotting cascade and many different factors in the clotting cascade. And Coumadin works on a variety of these factors. And that's important to make note of now because when I talk about the newer ones, I'll elude back to how they're different from Coumadin. But Coumadin was around for a very long time. And it took a long time for anybody to challenge DuPont, who held the patent on Coumadin, to come up with a generic. It was even more so many years later that they even came up with a medication that could even challenge Coumadin as an oral anticoagulant. And basically, in the initial discovery of Coumadin, we checked people's clotting time by basically add the reagent to the blood and then count the number of seconds it would take for the blood to clot. And that was known as the PT or the prothrombin time. Well, that was all well and good except people travel. And so when they travel, they would go to different clinics and have their blood measured. Well, the reagent that they use might be made by someone else. So their PT or prothrombin time would be off a little bit. And so we realized that really wasn't a great way to monitor it. So what they did, I believe in 1994, was they converted everybody over to what's called an INR. And now people get a PT, prothrombin time, along with an INR, which stands for Internationalized Normalized Ratio, which basically takes the factor of the reagent and multiplies it with the time of clotting and then you come out with the INR. So therefore, somebody that has an INR between two and three in Temple, Texas, and they get their blood measured in Minneapolis, Minnesota, their INR will be the same as it would be here, just even if they use different reagents or different equipments. So there's been a lot of advances there. And now there's such things as POC or point of care monitoring where they're home INR measuring machines where you can actually just prick your finger at home, plug it in to the machine, and send in your INR to your physician. These aren't so much used at home because of the cost as they are in outlying clinics. It's quite a burden. We notice it even in the VA 
the people that are on Coumadin find it very difficult to drive to a clinic to have their blood level measured. But yet it's so important, especially if they've had an elevated INR or a low INR, they may need to be seen back in a week or two weeks. Well, if you're driving 100 miles to your nearest clinic, obviously this is an inconvenience. But if you have some small clinic near you, they can have a point of care monitoring or a POC machine and actually take your blood there and give you the readout and then send it to your physician that may be 100 miles away. This is all part of the technological advances in medicine along with the face-to-face or telehealth, as uh, Mm -hmm. people call it, where you're actually talking to your physician on the phone. Mm Wow. Wow. Well, of course, I've heard of INRs because that's something that heart moms are always talking about when they have children who are on Coumadin, and it's something that they worry about because they want it to be the perfect number, and it seems like it's a pretty difficult item to regulate. It seems like it's something that, especially for young children, it takes a while for it to be at a steady number, and then they hit puberty and everything's out of whack again. Sure. Sure. Any kind of medication, sometimes a diet change, anything along those can affect an INR, even sometimes activity. So, Wow. And that's the one thing that I've heard from others over and over is it's a very difficult thing for them to regulate and for their children to still be able to live a normal life. And the children become afraid of needles and become afraid of nurses and doctors because unfortunately they have to see those people, especially phlebotomists, a lot more than you would want your child to have to see someone. Sure. But we do need to take a quick commercial break. Don't leave yet, folks, because coming up next, we're going to talk to Becky about other drugs that are used for anticoagulation and why some drugs are preferred to others. We come back after this quick commercial break. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today's show is What's New in Anticoagulation Drugs? And our guest is Rebecca Brunell. Becky is a pharmacist in my hometown, and our boys actually took taekwondo together for years. And Becky was kind enough to agree to come on the show to share her expertise with us regarding anticoagulants. And the major reason I wanted to have you on the show, Becky, was because I wanted to address what kind of anticoagulants are on the market and why some are used more than others. In the first segment, we talked about Coumadin, but right now I'd like us to talk about some of the other anticoagulants. I have a son who is an adult. He was raised on low-dose aspirin when he was little. Well, they used to call it baby aspirin. Now they call it low-dose aspirin. But can you tell us a little bit more about some of the anticoagulants that are around and what makes them different? Yes. Well, now aspirin is referred to as low-dose aspirin, and that came into being probably about 20 years ago with the dangers of Rye syndrome. And they really didn't want to give the idea that this aspirin now was safe for babies. So they also realized at the same time that aspirin could be a very important part of the anticoagulation 
therapy. And so therefore, they felt like by naming it low-dose aspirin instead of baby aspirin, they were taking care of two different things. Number one, not giving the idea that aspirin could be given to babies because of Rye syndromes, but also for it to be used in adults as part of coagulation, stroke prevention therapy, things like that. As it's defined, low-dose aspirin is usually 81 to 162 milligrams, basically one low-dose aspirin to two low-dose aspirin, is considered low-dose anticoagulation therapy. High-dose can be anywhere from 325 milligrams of aspirin to, in very rare instances, 650, and that's very controversial. But usually that's how we distinguish between the two different aspirins. Okay, okay. So I know that when people are in a hospital, sometimes they have to have heparin as an anticoagulant. So can you tell us a little bit about heparin and why it's not used as a daily medication for people outside of the hospital setting? Sure. Again, heparin requires a lot of monitoring, more so than your typical INRs with Coumadin, where it can be monitored anywhere from once a week to actually once a month. Heparin needs to be monitored if it's given as a drip or steadily as an IV fluid, needs to be monitored at most every six hours, at the least every 24 hours. So, of course, that's not really conducive to home therapy, even so cutaneously. However, there are such things as low molecular weight heparins, which are your anoxaparins and your erixtras, fondoparinos, things like that, that can be given at home, especially for somebody that's going to have surgery, where you need to pull them off their Coumadin for two to three days prior, but they're not out of the woods where they still need some anticoagulation. So what you'll do is send them home on these once daily to twice daily injections of the low molecular weight heparin. The heparin is great because it has a short half-life. Heparins are great because you can withdraw them within hours of the surgery and not be at danger during the surgery or the procedure to bleed to death. They're also given a lot to pregnant women who need the anticoagulation. However, they can't be on aspirin for one reason or another, certainly not Coumadin, but you can give them these injections. Of course, they're very expensive, but for people that are undergoing any kind of chemotherapy or oncology exams where you're always at risk for clotting or strokes or any kind of DVTs, then you definitely want them on some kind of heparin. But basically, for the most part, heparin's just not conducive to the outside world because it does require so much monitoring. Wow. I didn't realize that you could give yourself heparin shots by injection at home if you were under certain Mm -hmm. conditions. And that is something that we do worry about, especially our kids and our adults who have mechanical valves and they're required to be on Coumadin because of the mechanical valves, but then they need a valve replacement and they may have to have the open heart surgery. And like you said, to be off of the Coumadin can put them at risk. And so it's nice to know that they have the heparin as a fail safe so that they don't have a stroke while they're waiting to have surgery. I know you're not a medical doctor, but just from a pharmacist's perspective, can you tell us why children with complex congenital heart defects like HLHS might need anticoagulants? Yes. Anna, anytime you're dealing with a disease state or something, especially with heart disease, everything is going to have something that we refer in the medical field as risk versus benefit. Obviously, the risk with children, adults with heart disease is you worry about clotting or strokes. And I always give my patients the example of if you're ever running bath in a bathtub and you notice that the drain is slow 
and it's not draining right, you see all the water kind of pooling, well, that's sometimes what happens with heart disease, whether it be a valve defect or atrial fibrillation, that it's just not draining. Well, of course, blood loves to form together, and it loves to clot because that's just what it does, so it'll get really sticky. So you want it coagulated so it takes it longer to clot, so maybe some of that blood can move through the drain, so to speak. So you're really looking at the risk versus benefit, especially in children. Is it a bigger risk to have a clot? And is the benefit more so with the side effects, especially if you have a young active child that bruises a lot or can fall a lot? We more so see this with adults as they get older and they become unsteady. If they're at risk for a fall, is Coumadin really the best drug for it? Doctors have different opinions of it because unfortunately the studies and the experience and the head-to-head studies are very rare, especially in children. So Mm -hmm. what you're doing is what looks the best or what you have the most experience with based upon the other factors that the child may have, the other disease states. If you have a child with any kind of cerebral palsy that they may be at risk for falls, do you really want them on an anticoagulant and especially not a high dose? So it's basically a recommendation. I don't know that there's anything that's a magic pill. In fact, there's not that can work for every kid in every situation. So it really is doctor's best experience. And sometimes I even say, well, it's the doctor with the most experience or the best guesser because I know even as a pharmacist, sometimes I'm like, well, this worked for one patient. It might work for you, but I can't guarantee that. Mm -hmm. Right. And We'll be talking even more about this in the next segment. We do need to take another quick commercial break, but don't leave yet, listeners, because when Becky comes back, we're going to talk to her about the future of anticoagulants and changes that we might expect regarding the medications required for adults with congenital heart defects. We'll be right back. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today's show is What's New in Anticoagulation Drugs, and our guest is the fabulous pharmacist, Rebecca Brunell, and I'm having so much fun talking to her about anticoagulation. I know I sound kind of like a geek that I get excited about drugs like this, but it's just like Becky said in the first segment. It is amazing how drugs can improve a person's quality of life and it can extend life as well. And so today we've been talking about anticoagulants, but I have a question about a person's body becoming acclimated to anticoagulants because I know that when people take certain drugs, after a while their body doesn't respond to the drug the way it did when they first started taking it. So is this something we need to be worried about with parents of children who are growing to adulthood now or adults themselves? Well, Anna, to the best of my knowledge, there's no studies yet regarding resistance of Coumadin or where the body may become acclimated to any kind of anticoagulant, be it aspirin or Coumadin or another one. Usually it's due to age and other disease states that may come along. As the body ages, you might become more susceptible to atrial fibrillation, 
where the atrium of the heart beats faster than the ventricles and it can't keep up, much like the bathtub scenario I gave. Mm -hmm. You might become more susceptible to pulmonary embolisms, PEs, or even DVTs as the body ages and people take longer trips and then they may need a different anticoagulative therapy than the low-dose aspirin or even a low-dose Coumadin where the INR may be 2 to 2.5. It may need to even go up to 2.5 to 3 if they become at risk for some kind of DVTs or PE dangers. Well, I'm so glad that you explained that because it's not uncommon for people who had open-heart surgery as an infant and then had open-heart surgery again later in life to tweak things for them to develop scar tissue on the heart. And because of the scar tissue on the heart, it frequently will result in rhythm problems that they didn't have as an infant. And so I guess it's not uncommon for their anticoagulation needs to change. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Before we go, what is new in anticoagulation drugs, Becky? Well, we have something called the DOAX, D-O-A-C, apostrophe S, or the NOAX, N-O-A-C-S, which are both basically the same class of drugs, just different names. The DOAX are known as direct anticoagulation therapy, or the NOAX is non-warfarin oral anticoagulants. And basically what they are is when I talked about Coumadin, I talked about the clotting cascade and the different pathways that Coumadin works on. Well, these direct anticoagulants may work on one or two of the clotting cascade, so they have a much more narrow therapeutic index. They don't hit the whole clotting cascade, hence they are more specific drugs. And of course, the names of them are apixaban, dibigatran, or rivaroxaban. Now, most of the studies are about dibigatran and rivaroxaban. They have most of the published and ongoing trials. There is another new one coming out, I believe it came out in January, adoxaban, and that is the newest. Fortunately, because they are new, they do work very well, and most of your listeners will know them from commercials. You either hear about them on the commercials for all the good that they do, or you'll hear about them from the legal end about some of the side effects that have happened. A lot of it's because they are new drugs, and all drugs can carry side effects or have side effects with them. The Bigatran right now is the only one that has a reversal agent. We all know Coumadin has a reversal agent in vitamin K injection or as a tablet. Now, the Bigatran has a reversal agent, but it's the only one right now that has a reversal agent. So if something happens where there's accidentally taken too much, then it can actually be reversed, or if a patient needs emergency surgery, it can actually be reversed. But the other ones at this point don't have a reversal agent. Also, as of January 2016, there have been no FDA-approved indications or dosing in children. Again, that's not uncommon with a lot of the medications because it's very difficult to have the medications be done in phase two or three trials with children, just simply from the FDA standpoint. So those are basically a summary of what the new anticoagulation therapies are. So it sounds like this is something that is really good for the heart community, that now they'll have more choices for the type of anticoagulants and that they can have more specific drugs that just work on a certain aspect of that clotting cascade. Am I understanding that properly? That, 
That is, that is correct. They do have more of a narrow shot with them or a narrow direction with them. That doesn't mean that they're without their side effects. With anything, there are side effects. The greatest thing I think that they offer is the lack of monitoring. You don't have the lab monitoring with these like you do the Coumadin. It makes it a great option for people who live out in the country. It makes it a great option maybe for children that don't want to be stuck with a needle once a week or once a month as deemed necessary by the physician. That is a huge advantage because I know that many of our adults with congenital heart defects suffer from having been stuck so much as children that they have a great phobia of needles. And so to know that now there are some options for them that don't require that close monitoring, that is a huge advantage. What advice do you have for adults who have to take anticoagulants from a pharmaceutical standpoint? And what should all adults with heart defects know regarding their medication? Well, Anna, I'm glad you asked that question because this is my, I don't want to say pet peeve, but this is my soapbox, okay? For patients, their role in the therapy is every bit as important as the physician or the other healthcare providers, the nurses, the pharmacists. Number one, compliance. Compliance, compliance, compliance. Make sure you take your medicine when it's prescribed and how it's prescribed. Set an alarm clock on your watch, your phones. There's even apps on phones that will do it. Make sure you take your medications. If you don't understand why a certain medication has been prescribed, ask. Pharmacists are still one of the providers that give information a lot of times for free. So ask questions if you don't understand. Ask questions of your providers. Also, if you have an adverse drug reaction or you have something that's not working or you don't feel like that you're getting the results that you intended, report this. Report this to your physician or your physician's nurse and ask what maybe can change or what you need to do different. Finally, Make sure you tell all your providers, whether it be a dentist, whether it be even a acupuncture or anybody that might come in contact, let them know that you are on Coumadin or on a blood thinner or some kind of anticoagulant. If you have a bracelet or a necklace, wear it. There's no shortage of things you can do to keep you or your child safe that are on medications. Remember that all medications have risks as well as benefits, and know that there are lots of medications out there. Just let your physician know that what's working for you and what's not working for you, and what may work for your neighbor or your friend may not work for you. But again, all medications work best when they're taken and taken the way they were prescribed. Oh, I love all of that advice. That is so perfect because I'm sure that people get tired of hearing that they have to take their medication on time and that they need to be scheduled. But it really can have amazing results. Look, your father was able to live for 11 years with some major problems when all hope had almost been given up on him. And so it really is amazing if you are strict with yourself. And you're right. How easy is it now to program your phone to give you a little alarm to let you know, oh, time to take my medicine? And it really can have Fabulous results. I love what you said about the pharmacist can give free advice. (laughs) We don't don't often think about that. But, yeah, anytime I have a question, I always feel welcome to go to my local pharmacist and ask them. But I've never had this many questions for one pharmacist. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Becky. Well, thank you for having me, Anna. It's been quite a joy.
Well, it has been great to learn so much, and I'm so excited about the new anticoagulants that are available. I'm going to get with you later so that you can spell all of those drugs for me, and I'm going to put a little something on the website about it. I might even write about this in my blog so that people can see the names of them because they sound a little bit hard. It's a lot harder than aspirin anyway. So thanks again, (laughs) Becky, for coming on the show today. All right. Thank you, Anna. Well, that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Please find and like us on Facebook. Check out our website, hearttoheartwithanna.com and our Cafe Press Boutique. Follow our radio show on Blog Talk Radio and Spreaker. And please help us by sharing this information with others. We know that congenital heart defects touch people all over the globe. But remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next week. Music.